When Auckland-based artist and photographer Abhi Chinaya was growing up, her entire worldview was shaped by the colour of her skin. She, like billions of people around the world, was introduced from a young age to skin lightening creams and the value of being light-skinned. She learned through experiences of bullying and discrimination that having dark skin supposedly made her less attractive, less smart, and less capable than her lighter-skinned peers. This is colorism, a form of discrimination based on skin tone, and it's a product of a world where skin color continues to serve as the most obvious benchmark in determining a person's value. It's a common occurrence in all corners of the world, often starting right in your own home and family. It dictates your wealth, your health, and all the opportunities you get or don't get in life. And it's Abby's lifelong experiences with colorism, her own journey in grappling with it, and how it inspires her work today that we explore in this conversation. First of all, I'd love to congratulate you on your latest exhibition. I had the honor and the pleasure of attending on opening night, and it was such a cool experience. Your portraits are so beautiful, and I think they really do a lot of justice to highlight just the beauty and the color of people's skin, um, which is a huge theme in your work. My friend who I attended your um, exhibition with, she was telling me about how difficult it is to photograph darker skin if you don't know what you're doing. Can you talk about some of like the behind the scenes stuff in terms of putting your exhibition together and in terms of like the creation process and all of that? Yeah. Um I am dark skinned, so I think as a creative I understand how to photograph dark skin because I have a view of how I would want to be seen, how I have not been represented all of these years. So it's very important for me with my work that you see the model as they are. The process of creating Melanin Rising, it took just over a year from conception, which is what I call when I start to have the idea to getting it off the ground, photographing it, and then marketing it, and then having it up in a gallery. Can you talk to me more about the inspiration behind Melanin Rising? So colorism's kind of weaved in and out of my photography and creative life since I started photographing, but I had a few instances through work and in my personal life that made me, I already had the knowledge, but it reinforced a belief, I think, of how people with dark skinned, the tokenism and how we're kind of a checkbox to tick or we're fetishized, fetishized? I don't know how to say that word. That's a hard We're word a fetish. Say. It's such a hard word to say. We're a fetish <laughs> or sexualized and we're seen in a different way. Like I remember when I was 14 at a, at a family wedding and there was a man who was there from Canada and he kept looking at me. It was really disturbing. And he was like, oh, you're so exotic. You're really exotic looking. And I remember my dad <laughs> looking really uncomfortable and not very happy with how he was looking at me. But that was interesting, having someone say that to me. So inappropriate, too. Massively inappropriate. And he was like 14, so I was like, what is going on? But all of these things, all of these experiences, I think I just didn't have the capacity to unpack it or understand it. So like I said before, it was all kind of living under the surface, but then it became something through my photography. But Melanin Rising, yeah, the inspiration came from 
having more experience with doing these projects. And I've learned a lot from doing light skin, dark skin. And I wanted to revisit that and just do it justice that I didn't feel I gave to it with that project. So for people who don't or aren't familiar with your work, can you explain a little bit about light skin, dark skin? So light skin, dark skin was a photo essay. And it followed the journeys people take because of the color of their skin. So with that project, I think I had seven Kiwi women and my portrait style is, I think, a marriage between documentary and fine art. That's what I think anyway. So it's very straight on portraits of people and their faces and a big focus of my work for that project as well in particular was the wearing of traditional costume shouldn't call it traditional costume traditional outfits because I wanted to connect heritage and culture and the feeling of home and where home is so from that already I think you can kind of understand I was trying to unpack a lot of things with light skin dark skin because colorism was the overarching banner of that project but I had so many other things that I wanted to navigate as well through this one thing And um, all of my portraits I like to accompany with essays and the essays are written by the people who are in my projects, in the photos, because it's important to me giving them the agency to tell their story because I grew up looking at documentary magazines and looking at dark skin faces and you never really knew who they were or what their story was. Someone had gone and photographed them, often someone with privilege who got to be there in the first place and they photograph them and they've put them on the cover of a magazine. You don't know anything about them. So with my work, it's very important that the people who I am representing and photographing get to have their say as well. I know that with Melanin Rising, you sent your um, guests or subjects or what do you prefer to call the people involved in your projects? <laughs> I'm always struggling with a term. A portrait sitter was one portrait that I sitter. Mm-hmm. could think of. But yeah, they're not models because it's more than that. So it's yeah. a hard one. I Sometimes I just go people in my projects. Okay. Well, <laughs> I see. Okay, cool. Well, um, for the people who were in your Melanin Rising project, you sent them like a bunch of questions, right? To help bring out, I guess, their stories in relation to the theme of the project. How did you decide what you wanted to portray and what you wanted to draw out from each individual? Yeah. So I think I'll like go back to having the experience now. I knew exactly what I wanted to focus on with Melanin Rising. So it's a much more refined exhibition, I think, compared to my previous work. I knew immediately the things that affected me as a child was the use of skin lightening products, which I was using from the age of eight. And media representation was a huge thing for me as well, because I never saw myself represented on television or in magazines. Or if I did, it wasn't, it was like tokenism once again, like I said before and skin discrimination inside of communities was another thing that I wanted to focus on. So I kind of narrowed the scope with Melanin Rising. I sent them all questions. Another focus that I wanted was for future generations and what I would want children and youth to know about the color of their skin and to be comfortable with who they are. So these were the questions I asked the people 
in Melanin Rising. And they came back with answers, and then I shaped them into essays and worked with the individuals in Melanin Rising. And yeah, and then you saw it at the gallery next to their portraits. Yeah, it was beautiful. Were there any sort of learnings or overarching things that you observed or took away from the process and also hearing and learning more about other people's stories? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think what was so incredible was that we all have our own unique upbringings. We all existed in different communities. And while some of us grew up in the same country, we had our own cultural backgrounds that we were existing in, trying to assimilate and trying to find that belonging. But the language of colorism is very similar across all of these stories. For instance, I for Kadijata, she talks about how growing up in Senegal, Africa, watching Bollywood movies. And I was consuming those very same movies. And it just it's hard when you see someone, the lead actress or the lead actor, they're always someone with light skin. And the people in the background are the people that look at like me who are the villain or they're the butt of the joke or they're just not seen as someone to take seriously and how this ties into my experiences now that I think about it in my childhood, how even in my community, the people with the darker skin were never taken seriously and they were always seen as the joker or the person who was funny or never the person who was smart and confident and had something really good to say and was of value. And it's really important for me that when I start a conversation, I make sure that people with dark skin are seen as equal to everyone else. That's massively important for me. Does it shock you or surprise you that in the 21st century, we are still having these conversations and dealing with the ramifications of things like colonization, slavery? I don't know if shock is the word. Just tired? It was interesting because with Melanin Rising, for instance, I spoke to a group of people on Sunday. Some of them had been photographed for Melanin Rising, and one of the ladies, Stephanie, she was in my first show, Light Skin, Dark Skin. And we talked about how we all came to learn of the word colorism. And also, one of the panelists, she brought up a poster for a movie that's premiering at the end of September, and it's about a South Indian princess. And that poster, 2022, like right now when we're having this conversation, that poster has a light-skinned lead actress, who's the princess, and this group of dark-skinned young girls just, you know, celebrating her and looking at her. One had her, you know, hand over her mouth and oh my gosh, look at her. And One in particular, oh my gosh, I just saw myself in this girl. She's holding her hand and she's looking down and minimizing herself and trying to make herself small as if she's looking out for this woman to walk forward. That just, that encapsulates so much of my life and how I was treated and how I thought about myself, how I still think about myself. That's a, so that was that really stuck with me what um that panelist said about this movie but yeah I just went off on a tangent but that poster was it just 
maybe that yeah not that not shock again but just really still doing this (laughs) Yeah, and when you were explaining, uh, describing that, sorry, it kind of reminded me of the whole like, you know, that whole all representation is at least some representation kind of thought process. But then it's like, at what point is it just ridiculous to just accept any and all representation in popular media? At what point do the creators have to take responsibility for actually reflecting the actual lives of the people they're creating for yeah and this was another thing that one of the panelists brought up was how money talks but also from a marketing perspective who are the power holders and the consumers so the power holders are giving the consumers what makes them money but having worked in marketing in a beauty background and I was in that space for a while I know I never had the power to put someone who looked like me in a campaign. That was never my decision. And this is how, for instance, I know with your other episodes, you talk about how important diversity is. This is where diversity matters. Because if you had someone like me sitting at the table, there's a good chance you'd hope that there's a higher chance maybe that you would have someone then that looks like me in a campaign or on TV or, you know, and the more people you had at this table that represented all of these people, I think that would cascade down, right? And you'd have more representation. We're still very behind on that. We're still extremely behind. Yeah, yeah. As someone who's worked in marketing as well on these kinds of campaigns, do you find it like a really big struggle to include diversity and equity in these campaigns and to constantly be the person who speaks up to almost like remind other people that it can't just be like pale and stale the whole time. Yeah, for sure. I think my first ever marketing job out of uni, it was just the worst. I don't even know how I made it those years in that job. But at that point I was, I was Abby in that job. I was an Arby, by the way. So we will get to that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't have had the confidence to say what I felt. And it was only later in that job when I, you know, kind of started photographing as well and was saying to my manager, you know, wouldn't it be good if we had darker skinned models like that we're promoting? And I remember she said, no one wants to look at that. And I was like, okay. Oh, my gosh. And then when I went into my next job after that, I had a much better team. But unfortunately, a lot of the comms that was coming out was coming from Europe. And so you had a lot – you just had lots of light-skinned people in their campaigns. But the team I was working with were very well informed on diversity. And, for instance, my manager, who was really fantastic, she – would echo my sentiment and actually I really that job gave me more confidence to speak up about what I believe and I'm grateful for that but you always kind of feel like the person who is complaining or harping on about a topic and everyone's like oh here she goes again about race and colorism and and I'm like well this is actually really serious and it affects people and it affects entire lifetimes and generations so I will talk about it and yeah even even now I still feel like I'm the lady that's just kind of 
harping on about the same thing. I'm like, do you know colorism? Shadism? Fair and lovely light skin, skin lightning creams? Ah. <laughs> and it, I'm, I'm really conscious of that. But, you know, I'm very, like I said, passionate about this. So it's something like I will, it will always, you know, weave in and out of my work. Yeah. And yeah, that goes back to your comment before about just feeling tired about the whole thing, because it is such a constant uphill struggle. We just need like more and more voices, right? And not to give in to the status quo. Yeah. And that's so much easier said than done, because when you're trying to work your way up the ladder and like, for instance, a corporate or whatever career you are in, that can be very, very challenging when you're in very westernized systems and you feel like you need to conform to their beliefs and kind of let go of your heritage and, you know, you dress a certain way, you dye your hair a certain color, and that's still very much something people have to do. And it's really sad that, you know, this is still very much alive. Yeah, definitely. And I remember in your essay, you made a point about how on top of migrating across literal oceans, your ancestors also had to put up with all the things that came with trying to fit into a world that doesn't accept darker skin and the way that sort of white supremacy and like colorism manifests is actually like turning people against their own people through like criticizing other people's appearance and weight and that kind of stuff. And I I did find that quite poignant. Can you describe more about the journey you've been on in terms of experiencing colorism? Yeah. So my dad, um, he came to Christchurch as a student in 73, I think it was. And um, yeah, he really didn't have the best time because of his racial background and probably because of where he was in New Zealand, I think as well, didn't help. But he was here and then I was born in 92 and did some school in Christchurch. And then seven years old, I was back in Malaysia at, we call it primary school there. I don't know what the equivalent is for New Zealand. I think it's primary school as well. Is it primary school? Yeah. And I just stuck out like a sore thumb because I had a Kiwi accent and I was very outspoken because what happens in the New Zealand schooling system is that you are told to speak up and talk and connect with your classmates, but it's a different ball game in Malaysia. You don't do any of those things. And I wasn't in international school or anything like that. I was in public school on the East coast of Malaysia in a very, very small town. And I vividly remember having really awful teachers at primary school. And because here I was coming in, I couldn't speak Malay at that point. And they were like, who does she think she is? It's seven years old. So I had some really mean teachers at primary school. But I also met some really, really good people who are still my friends today. And we really connected, which was great. But I was about eight years old. And I remember being given my first tube of fair and lovely cream. And 
didn't think about it. It was probably too young to understand it. But the message that I was given was you need to lighten up, literally, because you're too dark. Especially when I would be out in the sun because Malaysia is a tropical country. It's very hot. And I had to stay a lighter shade or become a lighter shade to fit in. It's so hard to understand the motivation behind why people close to you or in your community would do that. But I know, and I was talking to mum about this, it it came from a place of just wanting me to fit in and wanting me to be as, as successful as possible. And that belief was well, you had to have light skin for that. I remember using soaps and there was like a balm, all sorts of things. And at one point, I remember having like these patches that popped up on my skin. And thinking back, obviously, it was because of using all of these products to lighten my skin, right? So the ingredients weren't sitting well with my body. But we were like, oh, what? It must be like an infection or something like that. And just adding like another balm on top of oh, it. Oh, no. And, you know, mum was saying, she's like, oh, my gosh, you know, who knows what these products even did to our bodies from having used them. And I had teachers so later on in high school. I was very much more assimilated into Malaysian culture at this point. I could speak full on Malay and I really ingrained myself in that culture. And I had teachers who um, would have like sores around their face and have the really bleached look because they'd been using these products for years. And yeah, it's a, you can't really forget what that looks like, but you're not thinking about it at the time. That's just what everyone's doing. You know, you don't, there, there was no word for what this was, but that word was colorism. We were all just, I don't know, we're just trying to be, well, it links to like colonialism, doesn't it? Because we've, we idolized Pakeha people and we wanted to emulate them. And that was the vision of success. How enraging though, sorry to interrupt you. How enraging though is it to think that these invaders came to your land or like took you from your land to make you slaves in another land and then forced you into a way of thinking such that you would just like chip away at yourself like emotionally and physically and mentally until like you could blend in with them. Yeah, my paternal grandfather, he left Jaffna, Sri Lanka um, I can't remember the exact year now, but I did post about it on my Instagram like a few years ago. And he worked in the rubber and I think it was later palm oil estates in Malaysia, also a very small part of Malaysia, a rural part. And I remember my, because when I was with my work, I've also wanted to uncover the history of my family and our lives from Jaffna to Malaysia and then to New Zealand and then back to Malaysia because my parents live in Malaysia now. And um, I remember my one of my aunties laughing and saying to me, oh, your grandfather, which was her father, he um, there was one particular photo that he had with the British governors, I guess you'd call them, and they were all sitting on the chairs. I've got to find that photo. I'll send it to you. 
they're sitting on the chairs and my grandfather, he wanted to wear shorts like the British. He didn't want to wear the pants because he wanted to be seen as someone with authority. And and it, she laughed about it, but it made me really sad to think that we've gone back all these generations of bowing down to what we saw as a superior power. And isn't it amazing how I'm sitting here now talking to you about it through art? And even still growing up, if I had liked photography and my father noticed that I'd like photography. And I remember him buying me a Sony point and shoot and this really flimsy tripod. I had no idea what it was. And he was like, you can take like landscape photos with it and stuff. And Never once, though, had I thought, and this conversation just could never have happened if I'd said, can I make photography a career? That was never going to be an option. But I think it's an example of back to my grandfather's story to how the messaging cascaded down generations but became its own thing within these communities, right? Because you're not actively saying, the British did this. You're having your own belief system and it becomes its own story and its own belief. And then you pass that on to your children and they pass it on to their children. And that's just how the cycle continues. In terms of going back to what we're talking about before in your own journey. So I wanted to ask you a question around how you found your place in Malaysian society. Because I've had a couple of conversations with previous guests who have also come from Malaysia about how the society puts lighter skin, fairer people at the top and you kind of like the darker you go, the lower down you are. Can you talk to me about your personal experiences of living in a society like that? I think part of the reason why I was very submissive and I lacked any self-esteem was because I existed in an environment where not only was I the minority race group, but also the color of my skin added a layer on top of that. And with Melanin Rising, actually, um, Amalin, he contributes a really strong essay about his upbringing in Malaysia as a dark-skinned man. And I grew up with Amalin. Amalin is my one of my best friends. And I saw for myself how he would be treated because of his beard and his long hair, which he on occasion would have. And not only that, with my father, people would think he was dangerous or that he was a gangster or, you know, that there was just this perception of not only dark skin, but the racial group that we existed in. So. I mean, that, there's just so much to unpack with that experience. But I, th- I, it's just, you just kind of live your life and try to make the best of it. And that's what I think dad did, especially, was just try and make the best he could out of his situation and provide for his family. And then for me now, I he opened that door for me and gave me the privilege to be able to sit down and reflect and to be here. I'm here because of him. And he wanted to send me back here. So when I went back, so I was there for, I was in Malaysia for just on 11 years, I think. And that felt like my whole life. But now at 30 and I've been here since I was like just on 18. So really, I've actually been in New Zealand longer than I was in Malaysia. But I just think back now and Papa wanted to 
send me back into the New Zealand education system because number one, I was a very average student in Malaysia. I wasn't a straight A student, but I also had lots of friends who were straight A students who looked like me or were of Chinese descent. And because they have certain quotas in the public universities, they wouldn't get in, even though they were brilliant. So you have a lot of brain drain as well of these people who move out of the country and go into Western countries end up living there. Like in Australia, there's a lot of um, strong Malaysian community in the UK and now a growing and amazing Malaysian, you know, population in New Zealand, which is really, really great for me to see. Papa always said to me, like, you're not going to have the opportunities in Malaysia that New Zealand will give you. So I didn't have the choice. I had to come back for university. And he said, go back and be in that system because there's nothing for you here. (laughs) I don't think he quite planned on me staying, but um, I'm so glad that I, I'm glad that I did end up here in the end because I don't think I could have been doing what I'm doing now. Had I been there, I don't know if I would have had the same opportunity to speak up. It was really hard though, leaving my parents because I really love my parents and I can like really remember just having the best time with them. Like they just gave me the nicest childhood and they're so awesome. And now I'm like 30 and I haven't seen my parents in three years because of COVID and gosh, time flies, but that's another story for another day, I suppose. But it's just sad that we had to be separated for me to do what I want to do and that I couldn't do it where my family is. Oh, yeah, I think we could have another whole other conversation around the value of parents and family and especially making the most of your time together. Yeah, for sure. And also navigating the minority experience as well of how you know, you you migrate from where you consider home or where your roots are, where your ancestors were, and then you end up somewhere else for better opportunities and then the next generation ends up somewhere else. Yes, and maintaining that connection to your roots as you move further and further away is also another quite strong theme through a lot of the episodes that I've done. So very interesting conversations. How did you find your experience in Auckland? Um. When I was in school, it was a lot more, um, I remember, because my memory is from Christchurch and I have a sibling who's 10 years older than me and she went to school in New Zealand all the way through and she didn't have the nicest experiences um, and she had really, really bad colorism um, and shadism experiences in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But when I came to Auckland, it wasn't actually as bad. I remember my dad preparing me for the worst, though, because of what he had to face here. And he was like, you have to get ready for the discrimination. People are going to say that you you look like poo and they're going to think you're uncultured and they're going to think you're stupid. And he try, he was really psyching me up for the worst. But when I got here, I maybe I was just in survival mode at that point. I was really young. I was just... I was just on the cusp of turning 18 and, you know, very passive and not confident. And I would just do whatever anyone would tell me to do. I wasn't as outspoken. So I just wanted to fit in. And that's why I was Abby. 
because I couldn't be Aviarami. I had to be Abby. <laughs> Took me this long yeah. to well, become Abby again. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can laugh about it now. Um, but yeah, I actually did want to ask you about that story because you wrote an article for the spinoff about your name journey. And I just related to it so much because uh, last year I recorded an episode about my own name and sort of changing the way I pronounced it to try and fit in and distance myself from my heritage and all that kind of stuff. Tell me about the first time you started calling yourself Abby. That would have been at school here when I came back in year 13. And well, actually, to be fair, even in Malaysia, people would confuse Abby with Abby sometimes. But yeah, I remember it was my mum would always find it quite amusing how when we were living in Christchurch, people would be like, what's your name? And mum would be like, Abby. And then they're like, oh, hi, Abby. Mm. <laughs> so when I came back, I don't know if I made attempts to say that my name was Abby or I just went right into Abby. I can't remember. But yeah, I was Abby for ages. So I was Ab- Abby all through uni. Yeah, that one year at school, all through uni, and then uh, in that first job, I was Abby. And then I was like, nah, I'm just so tired of this because this just didn't feel right. And I was coming into a more authentic space where I accepted myself for who I was and what I look like and what I am. So then, yeah, I was Abby with the next job. And then I, it was so, I, I was so ashamed. Can you believe that? Like I was so ashamed to be Abby. And also this was something I would panic about telling people my name was Abby and then filling in forms with my full name, which is Abirami Kanagalingam and being like, oh, you know, that's just a very long name. <laughs> but you, you know, you're trying to yeah. minimize. Yeah. Minimize yeah. and maybe I don't justify. I don't know what it was, but it was so, what's the word? It was just really nice and it was a really good feeling to be Abby. Yeah. And I don't know why I did that now, but yeah, I guess I just, I don't know, I wanted to fit in. I mean, I can probably tell you why. It's like a white supremacy, colonization, trying to blend in, mm. all that stuff. And I think also, like for me personally, I'm not sure about you, but when I started actually pronouncing my name the way it should be pronounced, I didn't feel like I was lying to myself anymore. Like when I was saying my name the other way, it's just, it didn't feel like me. Is that how you felt as well? I didn't know who I was Mm. and I didn't know what I represented. I had no clue about what I liked, what I wanted. I knew what I should be doing because I'd been told what I should be doing, but I didn't know me. I wasn't me. So I was trying to be a version of me that wasn't correct. It wasn't a true representation of my identity and personality. Yeah. How have you navigated, like, because you obviously would have people in your life who only know you as Abby, do they now call you Abby or do they still call you Abby? <laughs> I still have friends who call me Abby. Yeah. Um, and that's totally fine because sometimes in a conversation, if we're talking about something or I've been somewhere and I'm like, oh, 
like someone called my name or something. I was like, oh, Abby. And then my friend would be like, oh, hey, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> but I just laugh about it. And then I was like, you know, my name's Abby, eh? And then um, one of my friends the other day, she was like, yeah, but you introduced yourself as Abby like 10 years ago. And now I, it's just, it's hard to switch that <laughs> off because you've yeah. known me as one name for so long. And then now I'm my actual name. So that's all good. That's totally fine. But there will be instances where I'll get in a, t- in a tiz of, um, which is such an innocent mistake that people make. If in an email I say, hi, my name is Abhi Chanaya, A-B-H-I, and they come back with, hi, A-H-B-I. <laughs> and sometimes, depending on the mood I'm in, I'll go back and be like, it's Abhi, <laughs> A-B-H-I, yeah. bold. As you should. As <laughs> but, you should. <laughs> but um, And then sometimes I just let it go. But yeah, there are still instances where someone would be like, Abby, and I'm like, no, it's Abby. On the topic of names, can you tell me more about the story behind the name of your studio? Yeah. So when I started photographing, I'm a big foodie. So this is a little funny story. I used to have a blog called The Fooding Foodie. Which is <laughs> 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 like really funny to look back on now, where I would photograph all of the stuff I was cooking the problem was I was also eating all of it because mm. <laughs> I love food. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this probably isn't very good. <laughs> so um, I stopped the food blog. And then I started photographing people and I changed the name of my Instagram handle to the side project because I was working full time in marketing and it was a side project. So it was a side project. And then it was... Was it after light skin, dark skin? Because it was pretty, it was fairly recent where I was coming into Abirami and coming into myself and understanding myself. And I was like, yeah, I think it's time to change side project to something that reflects who I am. And I was like, well, Rami, that makes sense because that's part of my name. Rami studio studio I don't have a studio but I was like I'd love to have one one day you will one day (laughs) I really hope so but that's why I had studio because I was just like that would be nice just you know to have one day but I couldn't get a website with R-A-M-I because my name is A-B-H-I-R-A-M-I and the only URL the domain that was available had two eyes on it Rami is one of my friends said, but it was interesting at the time because there were people I was talking to about whether or not I should change side project to Rami studio. And a couple were like, oh, I don't know if that'll appeal to all audiences because it sounds too ethnic. And I'm really glad I changed it. I think about this frequently now. Like, I'm so glad I'm now Rami versus the side project because it just really speaks for who I am. But that was a little interesting story there. Yeah. And I also feel like the side project is almost a metaphor or a reflection of the mentality of, like, sidelining yourself. So, like, definitely put yourself in the center, like, front and center, like you deserve. Yeah, there's so many times I can think of where I have put myself to the side. Even still now, mm, I in think what way? about um so many ways. Like I'll when I come across a very 
confident Pakeha woman, for instance, I will, I find myself minimizing myself or I forget how to speak and I become this scared little girl. And I'm like, where does that trauma come from? Because it's not something I was aware of growing up, but it's there. And I'll just kind of come across younger than I am or unable to have a conversation and form an opinion and contribute something. That happens a lot to me still. Have you done a lot of work on peeling apart that and like working out where the source comes from? Kind of. Like I kind of think because my parents had that same experience where they had to minimize themselves. And it makes me really sad to think because I feel like, I was like, gosh, you know, they, there's so much they could have done, but because they were within this world where it's really unfair, they couldn't. But I think that had a profound effect on me and how I think about myself. I'm also very sensitive, so that could be why. But I, I think I was just picking things up as a child that I've taken into adulthood. I didn't realize that I was picking up. Because people, I know a lot of people who know me will be like, oh, Abby's really outspoken and she can be very opinionated. There's many, many, many times where I'm not that person. And what I like with my current job, my managers pick that up and she knows that. And it was really funny because I had a hui on Monday where I was with very strong Pakeha women personalities and I didn't talk. (laughs) I had to couldn't talk and then I when I had a catch up with my manager after she's like did you get submissive again (laughs) I was like yes I did (laughs) because I fully have that part to me as well where I can just shrink away so like what you see on Rami Instagram if it looks like it's you know really exciting and confident it's really not a true reflection of what I am on the day-to-day and I'm working on that but yeah, definitely still have a lot to unpack. Yeah. I guess a part of that also is, um, and totally projecting myself onto your situation here, but like being in situations where you feel empowered to be your genuine and true self, as opposed to maybe an environment where you don't feel safe to speak your mind or to act how you would naturally. I think that probably goes into it as well Mm. because you know my mum and dad never told me to shrink myself if anything in my community like I was known as the person who was had that much more confidence because my father was always telling me that I had to fight for myself and things that only clicked when I was like 28 29 and I'm glad that he had given me that messaging as a child because it got me as an adult, your body, your body and your brain holds on to these things, by the way, these emotions and these experiences. And I'm very grateful to dad for doing that for me. Cause I, I think in our community, I think people were like, oh yeah, I'm wasn't as demure or, you know, whatever as I should have been, but Papa was teaching me to fight <laughs> and I'm glad because now as an adult, I understand what he was trying to tell me that as a child, I couldn't see. Yeah. It sounds like your dad has had a huge influence 
on who you are as a person now. Yeah. And it sounds like all of the stuff he sort of saw and foresaw and realized long ago. And he seemed to be very intentional in ensuring that he brought up his children to thrive in a world that wouldn't necessarily accept them. Yeah, and because it didn't accept him. So that I think that's why he had that consciousness to tell me and put me in positions he couldn't be in when he was my age. So huge, huge, huge effect on me. He is he's actually, like I said, you know, it was a combination of things that have led me into my work now and the topics that I talk about, but man, he was the start of it, eh? Like he really he did it. I don't think he he even realized. <laughs> But he did. He was a huge impact. And I just think about, yeah, just how awesome it was having him say awesome things to me. Like, you know, like, you're really smart. You can do it. No one else was saying that to me. So he he he, he did good for helping me because it got me to a place where I could be not necessarily believe what he was saying to me because you're still, you no matter how good your intention is you will still have baggage that comes with you and that will you know how do I put it like for instance when I have children I'm sure I will have the best intention and tell them all the positive things and give them the best environment I can give them but I'm sure I will have baggage that I'm not putting onto them but that they will see that's the best context I can put it in when I think about my father when you think about the future then you mentioned when you have kids so I'm assuming that's somewhere on the radar what do you hope that you can teach them about themselves and the world around them that is such a hard question (laughs) um I think melanin rising for me was the start of me thinking about that future and that's why I asked everyone in the show what their advice would be for youth and next generation when it comes to colorism and that's just one thing right but that I I just I don't know if I have the answer for you because I'm still trying to make sense of all of it but I can tell you while I am not confident with many many things one thing I will never ever compromise on or question is the color of my skin and that I know is a message that I will put down to my children as well and be like you you know you're fine with your melanin you go out in the world and you become a champion be the Serena Williams of colorism because you know like don't let that stop you from doing anything the color of your skin that is one thing I can say with 110% confidence because I never question the color of my skin now and I'm so happy that I've got to that point where I don't have to yep that's amazing it's really inspirational that you are putting that message out there and inspiring other um, people to embrace their melanin as well. Um, finally, with regards to melanin rising, I know that you mention that you do want to keep the project going in some way, but you don't know how. Ideally, what would be like your ultimate goal or what would you want to see out of your project I would love to photograph more people for it and travel for it because there's so much similarity 
with what's going on in the world when it comes to colorism. And it's still a taboo topic for a lot of people to talk about. There's a lot of people who will go through the procedures of skin lightening and not want to tell people that they are lighter and they were darker. So there's so much still to uncover with that. But I would like to really delve deeper into media representation because that's just really something that irks me with how we have like the Mindy Kalings and stuff now, but there's still a long way to go. And I would really want to dive deeper into that conversation and also the use of skin lining products because you can buy them. You can buy them in New Zealand, by the way. They're available over the counter. So I could just go to a shop now and buy a product that would quote unquote lighten my skin. So there's there's so much to do with this project, but it's also really scary because I rely on funding. I had funding for Melanin Rising from Foundation North and Creative New Zealand. And that funding has obviously run out because the project is now coming to an end. But to keep the project going, there's so many factors that come into it, like, and funding being the biggest one. Yeah. (laughs) So it's also really tiring. I feel like I've just birthed this project and I've spent every waking moment of the last year thinking about it. But not only that, I've had two projects before this that echo each other and connect. And I'm here now being like, oh my gosh, how, how do I keep going? You have to bring it up. It's almost like a metaphor for like preparing you for to have children. <laughs> I'll put a vision board together, a melon rising vision board about how I want to keep the project going. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Abby, for joining me and for sharing your story and your work. It's really impressive what you're doing. And yeah, do you want to tell everyone about how they can get in touch or like where they can view your work? Yeah, sure. You can find me on Instagram at Rami Studio with two eyes, or you can head to loveyourmelanin.com where you can view Melanin Rising read the essays, look at the portraits and join the conversation. And it would be great to hear from you um, and hear what you think about Melanin Rising or what your experiences were with colorism. Yeah, definitely get in touch. Um, I'll put all of the links in the show notes as well. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I really encourage you to experience Abby's work and latest exhibition through loveyourmelanin.com. You can see all the photos and read the essays from the people involved with the project, as well as share your own experiences. I will link to the project website as well as Arby's studio website in the show notes. As always, if you enjoy this conversation, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Podcast.